We have a real treat today, everyone. We're going to be talking with Gary Lachman, who's had a very interesting past, going from recording artist to prolific author of the mysteries and the occult leaders that have affected the new thought movement and much more throughout the 20th and 21st century. And this is a fascinating topic. We're going to be using Donald Trump as more or less a poster boy for understanding what we're calling a post-postmodern movement of thought and the collective psyche. So without further ado, we're going to go to Gary Lachman, who's with us from London today. Hi, Gary. Good to have you with us. Oh, well, thank you for having me on. <laughs> a lot of people, um, if they're new to you, they probably have known you under another name from another time as the bass guitarist for Blondie, the group Blondie. And this always comes up, so let me apologize in advance for having you trot through this again. But what I'd really like to know is when you were in that position with the band where you had access to a lot of people around the planet, what was going on with you more in a philosophical and metaphysical sense that was drawing you into these subjects? When did it really start emerging? And did you have access through that lifestyle to certain people that really helped you form some of the curiosities and um, uh, thought, thought, well, essentially some of the viewpoints you've come to today in your writing? Did it start back then or was it after that? Well, uh, my interest in it started at the same time, pretty much, as when I started playing um, music in New York. And this was um, in the um, spring, summer of 1975. So that puts us back quite a few years. Mm -hmm. uh, but at that time, it was uh, reading. I mean, there were people, uh, but it wasn't practitioners in the sense or, or known people. I was uh, living in on the Bowery uh, in New York with uh, Debbie Harry and Chris Stein, the singer, obviously, and guitarist. And uh, it was in a sort of three-floor, sort of illegal uh, sublet uh, loft building. And uh, the person who was sort of running it was this um, very extravagant, flamboyant uh, artist fellow. And he was very interested in Aleister Crowley, and he had an Aleister Crowley tarot deck, and he used to do paintings of... Um, sort of canvases based on the Trumps and that sort of thing. Uh, and he was always sort of talking about it. And so I got, I had no interest in this sort of thing before, but um, from being around him, I got very interested in it. And um, Chris and Debbie, they had sort of a kitschy kind of uh, pop interest in these kinds of things. There were sort of voodoo dolls and, you know, pentagrams and things of that sort, you know, candles and the usual kind of stuff hanging around. But uh, there was a book I read at the time, uh, called Just the Occult, and is by a uh, British author, Colin Wilson. And the book just uh, knocked me out, basically. It, um, what, what did it uh, was that it wasn't just sort of a collection of sort of you know, spooky stories or just sort of spells or that kind of thing, but he approached it from a philosophical uh, point of view. I didn't know at the time, but he had already um, written quite a bit about philosophy and existentialism and things of that sort. And, and this book came out in about 71, I think. So I was reading in 75. So it was still relatively new. Um, and uh, it, it just made me interested in it. And fundamentally, I started to reading, I started to read everything I could on it about it. And um, at some point, you know, further down the line, when I moved to Los Angeles, I got involved uh, for a brief time with the sort of Crowley group. And there were other sort of uh, other sort of things I, I, I got involved with. But it wasn't until many years later, actually, when I started writing about this sort of thing that I started meeting uh, some of the, the people uh, that I do write about. Well, you're prolific and profound in your writing. You're, it seems to me that you're 
essentially a philosopher um, by trade more than anything else. And you've written on some... That accounts for my bank account. (laughs) That accounts for it, exactly. What does a mother say to their son? Do anything, just don't get a degree in philosophy if you want to support a family one day, right? Which my son did. You got a family, yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Family, forget about it. But in any case, yes, you're right. But you've gone on and you've written this incredible body of work, including um, including books on the lives of Rudolf Steiner, which I have yet to read and I want to read that one. I'm I'm very curious. My son went all the way through the uh, Waldorf system and I've always oh. found anthroposophical everything fascinating. And he's a very m- mystical character. Also, Hel- Helene Blavatsky, Alistair Crowley. Uh, Swedenborg and others. You, how many books have you written out? Thirteen, fourteen. Um, well, about um, well, about twenty, more or less, in 20. that um, area. I mean, there's one I wrote about my time um, when I was playing in Blondie. That's called New York Rocker, and then there's one that I've edited. But um, you know, out of just writing, yeah, no, pretty much, you know, twenty by now. Yeah. Well, I'm 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 doing it for a while now. I mean, the it's almost about twenty years ago when I got the contract for my first book which came out in 2001. So, um, you know, it's, it's, I've been doing it for quite some time. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, it's, um, well, I'm just very interested in this sort of thing. I mean, I, I even, all the time when I was playing music, I carried books around with me and I was just reading constantly. And I always wanted to write. I mean, the, I started out writing poetry, as, as so many people do, uh, as a teenager, and that got transmuted into writing songs when I uh, started playing in, in Blondie and, and had my own band and, and, and so on. And, um, but it wasn't until, as I said, about the early 90s uh, when I was working at uh, a bookshop in Los Angeles called The Bodhi Tree, which oh, now, yes. it no longer exists, but yeah. uh, it was sort of you know the biggest metaphysical bookshop west of the Rockies sort of thing. And I worked there from about 87 to about 93. And it was while I was working there that um, I started writing book reviews and things of that sort. And I mean, one of the reasons I um, uh, got interested in Steiner uh, was because um, while I was working there, there was like a whole wall, you know, books about Steiner and they're all anthroposophical. And um, there wasn't many books or hardly anything written by somebody outside of that kind of, you know, that world. And if they were, they were very critical. And uh, it was some years later when I was living in, uh, in London, um, and you say the, the Waldorf schools, uh, I, uh, my children, when they were young, they went to a Waldorf school here, and I met many of the parents, uh, obviously, who, who, whose children were going to that school, and a lot of them wanted to know more about Steiner, but they didn't know where to start because um, everything was sort of, you know, it was all of a package deal. So I thought there was uh, a market for that book, to put it that way. And uh, that was sort of the uh, first book I did with Penguin, who I've done quite a few books with o- over the years. Yes, yes. Well, <clears throat> I've yet to have the, the uh, pleasure of reading that one, but but I will. And talk about prolific writers. Um, I went to the Gertianum back in the 1980s doing a story on all of this, including some of the healing modalities. And there's an entire library that was put out based on just his lectures alone no less some of the more serious writings. No, no of course, yeah. I mean, I, I, haven't, I haven't been to the Goethe on them, but uh, I, I would love to go. Oh, absolutely fascinating. So is it fair to say that the book that is really kind of the lead up to this one is called uh, Politics and the Occult? That particular book you refer to in this one, because we are going into the world of the occult and politics right. again right. in your new book, Dark Star Rising. 
Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, I wrote a book called Politics and the Occult. It came out in 2008 um, at a time when the political landscape was rather different than um, it is today. And that book was sort of a general overview or history of the relationship between politics and the occult. But I, I did it from a particular angle. Um, if you're interested in that that concoction of politics and the occult, most of the not popular, but uh, there's a lot of material out there which is linking interest in the occult with with far right or very 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 conservative traditional points of view, and of course that is the case. Uh, but it's not solely that. And um, what I wanted to do in politics and the occult, and say, well, actually there is a kind of progressive occult politics as well, or you can see um, a connection between progressive. Uh, political ideas and certain people, um, you know, who have int interest in uh, in the occult. I mean, one person that you mentioned already, Amanda Blavatsky, uh, and I'm always surprised that she's never been picked up by uh, feminists because she was an incredible figure. Mm. She's one of the most remarkable women of the 19th century. And she was breaking all the rules. I mean, she was doing everything you weren't supposed to do uh, back then. And I'm, I'm sure it's the occult you know, sort of association that uh, makes her sort of taboo. But um, and other people, Annie Besant, who, uh, as we mm -hmm. know, she was involved with the the match uh, match girl strike and a variety of other things, and then she followed on after Blavatsky and the Theosophical Society. And the Theosophical Society itself, especially through Annie Blavatsky, was very influential in Indian independence and things of that sort. So there is a uh, 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 Victoria Woodhull, who was the first woman to run for president in the United States in 1872, and she was a feminist at the time, but she was also a spiritualist and a medium and a uh, sort of a magnetic healer and a variety of things like that. So there is a history of this sort of thing, and I just wanted to tell that story and bring it out. But um, more recently, uh, what's happened is um, there's been a kind of resurgence of uh, this link between politics and the occult. And uh, that's what I've done in the most recent book. And that's a different sort of story. It is indeed. And I think most people who have followed the, the life and time, so to speak, of, of Don, Donald Trump up to this point in his life certainly wouldn't um, align him with the occult in any way. So that's what's so interesting about the way you've done this. But if we go back for a moment, we're talking, if you set the stage, we're back in Manhattan. Uh, of course, all of the great occult leaders at one time or another had at least a studio apartment there that they were holding gatherings out of, to say the least, if not a formal center. And Donald Trump, yourself, you were exposed to this in New York City. Donald Trump is a product of New York City. But what most people don't understand about him, he's also a product of what you and Mitch Horowitz, who I've done a number of interviews with, and some others talk about it in your writings called the New Thought Movement. Now, this is a new concept for most viewers watching this, that Donald Trump was actually an active participant in this uh, philosophy. Let's get, go ahead and launch in and tell us about Donald Trump. Besides the uh, fact that he said, I'm the greatest student of Norman Vincent Peale ever. Well, that, 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 that's, that, that's the connection. Um, Donald Trump was a very uh, long-time devotee of um, the work of uh, Norman Vincent Peale. Uh, Norman Vincent Peale, um, as I'm sure your, your listeners know, is uh, uh, famous for uh, lectures and uh, he gave at the Marble Collegiate Church on Fifth uh, Avenue and 29th Street, and for uh, developing this whole kind of system of 
um, as you say, a new thought called positive thinking. He had a book called The Power of Positive Thinking that was a huge bestseller. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for, I think, a couple years. Uh, and it still sells quite a bit um, in, in this kind of prosperity gospel uh, kind of uh, audience. Uh, but when Trump's family, his parents, uh, his father was very much a devotee of, of Norman Vincent Peale. And they used to go when Trump was young to, to the lectures. And then later when Trump grew up, um, so to speak. Uh, he, he went to the lectures as well, and um, he had uh, two of his weddings took place there. Norman Vincent Peale presided over one of them. And um, Peale basically took ideas of what we're talking about, new thought, which is fundamentally a way in which your mind alone can make things happen. Thoughts are causative. Thoughts, thoughts create reality. This is, and this was something that, in a broad sense, is a very popular idea uh, uh, these days that you create one creates one's own reality in a variety of different ways. Uh, but in this particular uh, sort of way, it's the whole idea that what you think in some ways can um, actually affect events out in the world. And um, Peel basically put together a kind of very, you know, uh, a cozy, congenial Christian um, offhand kind of way of getting this message across. And um, the fundamental idea that I think Trump came away with from this was uh, when Peel said that it's facts don't matter, it's what you think about facts that matter. It's your attitude about the facts that matter. And I would say in sort of Peel's sort of way of doing this, and in general kind of new thought kind of way, which you can, you can take back to ancient philosophies, you can take it back to the ancient Stoics, who say that it's not things that trouble us, it's our ideas about things. And you develop an attitude of basically putting up with things, because in the long run, it all works out for the better. And that's kind of fundamentally sort of the positive thinking sort of thing. But Trump sort of takes it in a more aggressive way, in a way he sort of bats the facts away. It's, it's rather than developing a kind of positive attitude that, okay, I, I, I'll, come, I'll come up with an attitude where I can deal with this. It's like, no, my attitude is I don't want this. I don't want this. And you knock the facts away. And this is a very more aggressive um, kind of use of this sort of thing. And if, you're, if you read any of his self-help books, like The Art of the Deal, um, you can see echoes, uh, you can hear echoes of all of this in there. And, um, you know, it comes, if, if you're aware of this and you watch him and his speeches and, and um, when he's, um, you know, giving interviews and things of that sort, you can, you can see um, this kind of, uh, kind of shield where he's able to sort of press, press you know, sort of move aside um, questions and whatever he doesn't want to deal with. And he just carries on and, you know, uh, on, uh, with his agenda. I think most people up until now have thought this is just the product of, uh, you know, a restless, uh, impatient or lazy mind. But the reality is, as you point out in your book, that this is a long time practice of his. His way of doing business, as you say, in the art of the deal, is that you go into the day, you wait and see what happens, you respond to it, and you make it work. And now that's how he's trying to run the government. So you're saying... It shouldn't be surprising to anyone who understood the way he thinks that this is how he would be running the government at this time. And I would like you to comment on that. But also, I want to get into a really deep and extended discussion on this notion of new thought and creating one's reality. Egregores, which our audience has been exposed to. And the notion of what one should be creating. No one looks at the moral aspect of this story, just at the power of what 
our thoughts can do. So let's start out with the predictability of Donald Trump's running the country, well, to the degree that he is in the way he is. Well, as I say, I mean, I, 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 I knew about Trump. You, you say he was in New York in the 70s. And, um, you know, I, I was in New York in the 70s. I wasn't going to the same place as he was. But, uh, uh, you know, that's when I first, you know, knew about him was on the newspaper, um, you know, the red top uh, sort of gossip uh, sheets and all that kind of thing. Um, and um, but if, if you you know, for writing the book, I, I, I had to, you know, read up quite a bit and you just see uh, the kind of thing that seems to be shocking to everyone or, you know, very, very surprising. If you're aware of his, you know, previous career, it's just absolutely in character. This is how he operates. And it's very much keep everybody on their toes. You know, you don't, you don't necessarily know what you're going to do. He likes to keep things loose. Uh, he likes to, you know, operate, you know, free, uh, change things and so on and so on. And this is one way in which I sort of lead onto him sort of being uh, a natural born chaos magician. Uh, and which is, a, a, just to put it in, in, a, in the context, chaos magic is a kind of postmodern do it yourself form of magic that in many ways has similar kind of aims and even techniques as, as new thought of positive thinking. Uh, they, they don't necessarily have the same kind of um, philosophical background, but actually in, in practice, they're not, they're not very, very different. And there's something about Trump's own just behavior that the way he operates is very much along the lines of um, some of the, the general characteristics that are associated with this particular kind of, uh, kind of magic. And the whole idea of creating glamour, uh, a kind of image, and being able to present a kind of fantasy. I mean, one of the themes in the book is about um, how there's kind of a gradient uh, between sort of the magician, the guru, and, and the sort of the demagogue, because the, uh, in many ways they're all doing the same thing. It's to a larger, increasingly larger sort of uh, number of people. You know, the mm -hmm. kind of casts a spell over somebody, and the, you know, the guru has a group, and the demagogue has you know a whole nation uh, kind of thing. And again, not to make it so absolute it's not like an equal sign but oh well isn't it isn't it interesting that there's these similarities and they overlap and it's something that i can kind of see you can kind of see in trump because um um the whole time that he spent as a reality television um celebrity in many ways primed him for this um, you know position that he's in now and it primed the american public for it or whoever was watching uh, that that show uh, for it. And again, this is another aspect of the book, which is this whole idea where reality and fantasy or, you know, the, 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 the simulation and the actuality kind of start to overlap and lose, you know, lose their identity or, or start to blend because, I mean, um, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but the most popular thing on television these days is reality. Right. And that's why it makes perfect sense to me that, well, who would become president of the United States? Well, the reality TV celebrity because he stepped out of it. He stepped out of the television into this position that, you know, sort of ready for him to, to occupy. Uh, so I think he, you know, and, and if you, again, if you know, if you read some biographies about him, this is something, at least he says at different times he thought about going into politics, but he was waiting and waiting and all this kind of thing. So, um, I mean, again, you know, he says a lot of things, he makes it up as he goes along, but that's part of, part of his deal. But that, that was the sort of thing that, as I said, led me to think like, well, you know, no one should be surprised. And also no one should be surprised at his outlandish statements, um, which is again, something that he does all the time. It's shock tactics. It's a kind of uh, attempt to create a glamour, to create an effect. And again, this is something that's part of this kind of chaos magic technique. You kind of, um, you, you upset the reality 
the, the accepted reality of the sort of, you know, people you're, you're sort of, you know, interacting with. And it kind of makes a kind of, you know, um, it, 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 it sort of creates a kind of empty space for them because suddenly it's like, oh, God, we didn't expect anything like this happening. Right. And it carries on with it. Well, okay, so now we're looking at influencers. So um, Norman Vincent Peale also had an influence in the life of some other unknown conservative presidents, such as Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. Now, their personality characteristics don't seem, they don't appear at face value to have, hold many of the characteristics of the, the expression of new thought and the, the what I think Trump would call the um, positive use of will that their personalities exhibited. Can you just tell us if there were any parallels between these people before we jump on to another influencer of the people that surround um, not only Trump, but also Putin, because there is a commonality here. Well, I think with Reagan, he certainly um, was interested, as you say, he, you know, um, he, he, he knew Peel. Um, he also uh, was very interested in the work of uh, an American sort of um, occult esoteric scholar, Manly P. Hall, um, who wrote quite a lot about sort of the, the secret destiny of the United States sort of thing. And uh, I don't remember exactly what it said, but Reagan had a plaque in, you know, in his, the Oval Office, you know, more or less kind of, yes, you can, but, you know, from, from that, you know, uh, perspective, and it was this whole sort of thing, again, it was like positive, you know, positive thinking, there's, there's no limits to what the mind can do, there's well, no limits to, to so there, 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 there is this kind of very, and again, you can see, although they're not the same kind of thing, but, uh, and in some ways, I, I would say, again, this is just off the cuff, I would say, where Reagan is sincere, uh, I would say Trump is kind of, trying to milk a kind of nostalgia for that kind of, um, uh, that heroic vision of America that I think, you know, Reagan may have been one of the last, in, in, in that traditional sense, I'm, I'm right. not saying there aren't any heroes since then, but right. that very much, you know, America fighting the evil empire and, and still spreading democracy, you know, so Reagan is kind of, and, and, he, and again, he was someone on television. He was someone who he was played, on television. He television, was he played cowboys and all this kind of thing, you know, so he's very much that kind of hero figure. The well, hero has changed today. The hero now makes a lot of money on Wall Street. That's he doesn't go right. out to the open frontier and, and, you know, go out into the wilderness and, you know, he, he goes out and, you know, greed is good. He goes out and Wall Street makes a lot of money. So our, our concept of the, of the heroic is, is, is very different these days. Absolutely. And Reagan also was centered in Los Angeles. And at that time, so was Manly P. Hall. There were other movements there. Uh, Yogananda was there. So this, again, New York and Los Angeles were the real hotbeds for a new thought of all kinds, really. I mean, you can, if you extend that into a, a larger topic. And so now let's bring in the subject of, um, I think his name was Julie, Julian, was it Julian Evola? Julius Evola. Julius Evola. Okay, let's talk about him, Steve Bannon, Putin, and on, so we can start seeing who these influencers are, because this gets into a larger topic that leads us into a certain kind of uh, philosophical traditionalism that has to do with destiny and decline. And this, I think, is really important in the conversation. Yeah, I think maybe the best way to bring this in is to um, talk about um, an article that the New York Times uh, published in February of uh, 2017. And it was about a speech that Steve Bannon, who at the time was still you know, on Trump's bench, he was still his strategist, uh, he had given a couple of years earlier to a select group of churchmen in the Vatican. 
Uh, Bantam is in LA at the time, but you know, through the miracle of Skype, uh, you know, or similar technology, he was able to uh, give a talk to these fellows. And it's a very conservative group of churchmen. And in the midst of his usual rhetoric about the Global Tea Party and fighting Islamic um, fascism and, and a variety of other things, um, he he starts talking about Vladimir Putin. And um, he's, he's, you know, he's sort of, you know, half and half um, cautious, but he's also saying, you know, there's certain things about him that he likes, and, and he, he, he very much likes that Putin is standing up for traditional values. And then he mentions that there's someone in Putin's circle uh, who reads uh, Julius Evola. Now, what was interesting about this article was that, first of all, it was the New York Times, but that Evola was sort of the headline news for this. Um, uh, and this is what they focused on. And this was, this contributed to this kind of feeling that I know the people I knew were sharing at the time that all this stuff that was on the margins, on the fringe, has started to come into the center of things. It was started, I mean, you know, the New York Times would probably never have mentioned Julius Evola or maybe in a book review and, you know, just uh, Italian fascist, and I'll get on to what that means. But the fact that he's kind of like in the headline just means like, wow, this is, you know, weird times are on us. And the reason why it's strange that New York Times would even talk about this fellow is that Julius Evola was a brilliant but very, very controversial um, esoteric philosopher in the 20th century. And um, he had politics that were decidedly on the right, on the far right. And he tried to ingratiate himself first with Mussolini, he had some, some success there. And then with National Socialism, and he wasn't quite as successful. And then after the war, um, he was kind of an um, eminence Greece, kind of uh, sort of uh, intellectual figure in the background to a lot of... Uh, post-war far-right groups rising up in Italy. And he died in the early 70s. Um, but the fact that Steve Bannon, um, you know, the president's advisor, um, is at least knows about him. I don't know how much he's read him or not, uh, but uh, at least knows about him was something odd enough. But then he mentioned Evola, as I said, in the context of Putin. And the fellow that he was referring to uh, that, re that read Evola is this um, really interesting character named Alexander Dugan, um, who um, talk about an a eccentric career in politics. He started out as a sort of 1980s punk dissident who got arrested and in a lot of trouble for singing kind of anti-Soviet songs. And by the end of his career, um, not the end of his, but I mean, later on in his career, he became a very influential geopolitician. Uh, uh, and... Um, it's it's difficult to talk about him in in in, in a short time because he's uh, put together a variety of different kind of totalitarian and fascist and authoritarian different sort of political systems and he's kind of put them together in this kind of Velcro or kind of Lego way and he's and he's come up with a, a new vision of a new Russia and it's not so much that he's Putin's Rasputin as it's been kind of and, you yes. know. Uh, understandably so, you know, journalists will say that, but um, it's kind of like he talks to people and the people that he talks to talk to people who know Putin and, and, uh, and get Putin, Putin's ideas. And one of the things that I mentioned in the book is that I think there's good uh, reason to, to believe that um, a lot of Putin's activities in Ukraine and, and in Crimea, and, um, you know, something just happened um, in the last couple of days, um, were uh, guided or, or at least informed uh, by some of the ideas uh, of Dugan. So again, you have this, suddenly it's sort of like, okay, there's, there's Trump who's interested in positive thinking kind of thing. And Steve Bannon is reading this fellow, Evola. But, uh, but uh, not only Bannon is 
Putin is sort of, you know, um, being fed ideas that are coming from this as well. And the other thing about Evola that's important is that he is one of the intellectual sort of heavyweights that the alt-right um, refer to to give their yes. um, their new ultra-conservative, uh, their new right-wing political philosophy some some kind of intellectual ballast. Uh, 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 people like uh, Julia, uh, Julius Ebola, Oswald Spengler, and others as well, who are, you know, serious thinkers. You might not uh, agree with their um, politics or their view of the world, but they're, they're not raving, you know, sort of um, hooligans or something like that. They actually are serious philosophers. And um, so, again, so you have the alt-right, and Bannon had given the alt-right a, a platform um, on Breitbart. So all these kind of things sort of come together. And you, at least for me, it was sort of like, well, what's going on here? Why, you know, what, what's happening with all these connections? And that's not even the strangest part of it. That's kind of like the background in mm-hmm. which some this other weird stuff was happening that sort of led me to do the book in the first place. And what's interesting to me about it is because the philosophy of um, traditionalism you were mentioning just a little bit ago has to do, and I wrote this phrase down out of your book, it has to do with the primordial revelation of truth. And in this primordial revelation is embedded the belief that humanity's consciousness is on a descending path, which you might refer to even... um, you know, in the Vedas as the Kali Yuga, for example, um, the Iron Age, you know. And so when you have, uh, let me just back up a minute, uh, a bit, a minute. Uh, probably about a month ago, I interviewed a young man named Jason Louv, who wrote about the life and times of John Dee, right? And he said John Dee was really, in those times, there was the introduction of a notion of a type of Armageddon, or the rapture. Now, I'm going to dovetail that in with this because what what this would be saying is if we're on a declining path of consciousness, there has to be an end time, an end game, an Armageddon embedded in this story. And here are these, quote, uh, agents of change who use their will to uh, put themselves in positions of power that are embracing this. What does this say for the larger picture in our future? Uh, well, uh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I, I should have said when I was uh, talking a bit about Ebola that, indeed, as you say, he's he's an exponent of uh, a cult or esoteric philosophy, spiritual philosophy known as traditionalism, uh, which started with uh, a French scholar named René Guénon um, in sort of the 20s. Um, and Ebola knew Guénon and they uh, corresponded and um, they developed this philosophy in different sorts of ways. But as you say, generally, it, it, it begins with the idea there was this primordial ancient revelation of the truth back in the, back in the golden age. And since then, mankind has fallen more and more away from it. And as you say, they, they precisely talk about the Kali Yuga. Uh, the difference between, say, Ebola and Gainon, Gainon uh, keeping within the sort of Hindu system, if you know the caste system, you know, Gainon was like a Brahmin, so he was a priest, he was a, he was a sage, and he, he was quite content to sort of wait on the sidelines for the West to just go down. You know, the West was in decline, it was on its way out, and he was happy just to wait and, you know, maybe get his message across to a few people, this kind of select uh, group who, who, who would, you know, perhaps in the background uh, try to, you know, uh, promote a kind of traditionalist view of things. But, um, with Evola, it became much more active. Uh, he he was more 
interested in the Kshatriya, which is sort of the warrior caste. And it was this kind of spiritual warrior like the Templars or the, the samurai or something like that. And this is why he was interested in, in trying to get his ideas across to Mussolini. And, and uh, what he wanted to do um, was to sort of have Mussolini take on his, his view, his philosophy, because he wanted to sort of, you know, imbue his philosophy into, into Mussolini's fascists. But <laughs> one of the things was he, 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 at the end, he came to the conclusion that the Italians weren't, weren't the right material. They weren't fascist enough. They, they weren't <laughs> able to discipline themselves enough right. for this kind of rigor that he had in mind. And that's why he went over to see what, if the Germans could, could do it. But um, um, yes, it's, it's, it's something like that. And uh, yes, there is this sense that uh, we're, I mean, we've been going downhill for some time. Uh, Evola's book uh, is called Revolt Against the Modern World. Uh, it came out in the 30s. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I said before Oswald Spangler, he had written a book called Decline of the West, uh, it came out right after World War, uh, one. Uh, and so there's a whole kind, in many ways, it's sort of an industry of the, the, the decline of the West, but this is a particular view where Evola, he, instead of just waiting for it to happen, he wanted to help it along. And this, that idea to help it along, uh, like the end times won't come by themselves. We have to, we have to bring them on. This was... This was something that um, Dugan, who I mentioned um, earlier, Alexander Dugan, he's he's promoted this idea in in, in some of his books, especially this book called "The Foundations of of, of Geopolitics," uh, in in which um, uh, oh no, another one called "The Fourth Political Theory." That's excuse me, that, that's what I'm thinking of. The Fourth Political Theory, where he's trying to come up with some kind of political theory that's um, it's not national socialism, it's not Stalinism. Uh, uh, but it certainly isn't liberalism and democracy because th th those are the decaying, um, outmoded um, political, you know, sort of stances of the West. And the fourth political theory for it to come about, which is more of a kind of fantasy of his, he doesn't have a coherent idea, but it has to come out after this kind of ecstasy, after this kind of final, um, uh, there's a final battle for him. Uh, the, the big motor of history for him is, is between two fundamental powers. And there's what he calls the Atlanticists, sort of the seafaring nations. And today that's the US and the UK and Europe and so on and so on. And then there's the, the land base, the heartland, and that's Russia and, uh, and what he calls Eurasia which um, is for him, and, and he, he picks it up from previous generations of these sort of geopolitical thinkers, but it's the idea that there's a, a new civilization coming out of the Russian heartland. It's, Russia isn't the backward cousin of the West trying to catch up to the West. It's never worked. They've been trying since Peter the Great for, you know, to Russia to take on Western ways, and it just doesn't work. It tried, they tried to do it in the 90s, and it didn't work. So what's happening now is a new civilization. The West is going down. It's going downhill. And there's going to be a final battle between the Atlanticists and the heartland, between the seafaring nations and the, the mother of all continents. And, and there's a kind of fundamental metaphysical you know, struggle there between being and becoming, which is, is fundamental to Evola's thinking as well. And uh, the traditionalists are sort of the proponents of being, which is static and perfect, and it's the kind of um, progressive um, human idea of evolution and things change and all this kind of thing. So there's a metaphysical background to all this. But he really thinks, or at least he says it, you know, in his books, this idea of the need to bring on some kind of final conflagration in order to sort of spark the end times. 
Well, I hope he's wrong. Right. I'm not. I'm not in any way, you know, sort of supporting this <laughs> idea. Try to make it clear uh, what what he's talking about. Well, there are a few things that are kind of intersecting in my mind here. And one of them, okay, so Bannon and Trump and Dugan all, as I understand it, had, um, in their school years, they had a military school background. Yes. There, was, there was this in common. Um, there was this also in common with a lot of the people in the Bush administration, others before, um, and people that are in the tele- intelligence community as well, that are associated with the same school of thought, this notion of the decline, and somehow it has to be managed, and there will be those who survive this decline, but of course they're self-appointed. And so how do we start dovetailing that with it? Because you look at Trump then and you think, really, where, where is his mind in this great metaphysical battle uh, between the seafaring and the motherland people when he's cozying up with the motherland people? Is that just... What's going well, I don't know. On? I mean, I guess it's, it's, well, you know, one, one, one can't help but wondering, is this sort of cosmetics? Is it just exactly. interesting? But I, I, I'm, I'm no political, you know, insider. I, I have no idea. And, you know, who, who knows? I mean, what I understand with Trump, it's he gets on with, with the people. It, it's not so much, you know, he's sort of, he likes him. He likes Putin. He likes these other, he likes these other, you know, tough Strong guys. men. He relates yeah, he li- to that, and, and that's, again, that's something that's, uh, I keep mentioning this fellow Oswald Spangler, and he, he said, "With the decline of the West, you're going to have this age of Caesarism, where the new Caesars are going to come up. And again, they're going to be sort of plutocrats. They're going to be, you know, wealth, and money, and all this is going to be like this powerful thing. And I, I mean, you know, you can look back at quite a few thinkers you, who were talking about this stuff. I mean, something that keeps coming into my mind. You know, I keep saying to people, it's like, you know, um, you know, we're living in the future that all those books we read, you know, warned us about, you know, and it's, it's, it's here, you know, I, it's stuff I was reading in the seventies. I look at, Ooh, God, you know, it's, 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 we're out, here. The, it's out the door now, yeah. you know? So, and again, and I get, we haven't mentioned postmodernism that much, but that's another kind of, um, what do you want to call it? influence or, or, or something else that's added into this mix? Because one of the things about postmodernism um, is that uh, it, it too has like um, positive thinking and like new thought in the sense that, you know, don't let the facts get in your way, you know, create your own reality. The, the academies have been telling us this, the universities have been telling us this, this from since the seventies now, um, you know, the whole postmodern idea, there's no stable reality, there's no objective reality, it's all, um, you know, perception. relative, mm-hmm. it's all perception, and it's all, there's every, you know, it's all socially constructed, you know, the whole idea that you or anybody can step out of the sort of social construct that we all share and have an objective view, that's, that's a naive idea from, you know, the modern time, and now we're past that. And postmodern just means after the modern, I mean, it's contentless. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything by itself. Um, you know, it's, it's whatever happened. Uh, that's why I, I, I say I'm, I'm, I'm a pre-next thingist. Yeah. You know, pre, pre, I'm pre-next thing. Whatever it is, that's what I am. But postmodern is like it's after whatever, you know, the mo- you know, modern was. And, um, and the modern was this idea that, yes, we could apply reason and rationality and understanding and science and make a nice, neat, you know, world, which in one sense, you know, that's not a bad idea, but it doesn't quite work that way. And so you have postmodernism as this kind of, it's, it's what I call trickle-down metaphysics, because it comes down from the philosophical heights where, you know, 100 years ago, it was people like Nietzsche, and uh, well, a little bit more than 100, and, and then later on, you know, philosophers like Martin Heidegger and so on, who saying, you know, questioning this whole edifice of 
Western rationalism and reason, and rightly so, but it's kind of deteriorated, or it's kind of come down into this everyday level where it's turned into a sort of pop nihilism that in many ways lets us off the hook. You know, we, we don't have to worry about the meaning of anything. It's all pointless and who cares? And you could even drift into a kind of, well, you know, the world's going to go up in smoke anyway and you know, a hundred years and, you know, so what, you know, but uh, so that's created this atmosphere where it's sort of like, um, well, if we all create our own reality, then I'm just going to go for it. You know, like what, what, you know, what's to stop me? You know, there's nothing, there's not the whole post-truth alternative fact thing that the, the Trump, he, he doesn't do it as far as I know, but all he has to do is turn around and point at Michel Foucault or Jacques Derrida or uh, any of these other sort of deconstructionist and, you know, post-structuralist sort of thinkers and they'll they'll support him in the sense that well yes you know reality is relative and subjective and so on like that so all all these kinds of things have came together at this time and so and that's why i say in one sense i i, I have tongue-in-cheek said that trump is the singularity I mean, everyone's been waiting for the singularity for a long time and everything's <laughs> going to be different well everything is different everything was different that morning when you know, i woke up and i i he actually is president i, I knew he was going to get elected when he threw his hat in the ring I just felt like, as I said before, what's the what makes most sense? You know, a reality television president, of course, it makes absolute sense. Um, so, again, all, all the sort of the magic kind of stuff, it, all these kind of things add up, and they're taking place against this background where there's these larger kind of historical kind of issues. And in many ways, I think we have come to this this point where a lot of these things have come to a head. You know, a lot, a lot of these things have, have kind of um, bottlenecked at the same time. And they've created this atmosphere in which reality is, you know, up for grabs. It is. And when you're talking about things kind of bottlenecking, when you take this postmodern philosophy of anything goes and you mix it with the dark charisma, as you call it, of some of these players, and then you have the as you say, the egregore that's created oh. through social media, you have a potential for, well, I mean, if you were from an outside place looking at planet Earth, you might say, oh, look, they're using how, they're learning how to use their will and their mind. <laughs> but if you look at the result of that, there's a missing layer here. You see what yeah. I'm saying? Let's talk well, about yeah, this missing layer. There's a lot of wreckage uh, uh, <laughs> around the evolution of consciousness. I mean, it's 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 not something that's all laid out to a nice plan. Um, there's a lot of collateral damage, and there's, there's what I call collateral benefit sometimes too, uh, unexpected sort of things. But I mean, in one, uh, no, I I think you're absolutely right. This is one of the um, things I, I I mentioned towards the end of the book, and I also uh, touch on in, in an earlier book, the book I wrote just before Dark Star Rising is called Lost Knowledge of the Imagination. And it, it, part of it talks about this power of the imagination to create reality. And, and what, what, you know, what do we mean when we, when we say that? And there's a long tradition of that. And, um, but I, I, I am quoting, uh, the French, um, philosopher, uh, and, uh, scholar of Persian mysticism, Henri Corbin, and he says that, you know, it, uh, it's not any imagination will do. I mean, that one, one thinks that would be, okay, we've had centuries of this repression and rationality and reason, and so what we need to do is lift the lid on all that and just bang and let it go. And initially, that, that's a lot of fun and it's exciting, but after a while, that, that peters out and it, it kind of, you know, 
flattens out into a kind of endless kind of irony because, well, there's nothing, there's nothing to resist it. There's nothing to sort of back yourself up against and right. anything goes. And so what, what Corbin was saying is what, what we need is we need imagination, but we need a, a, a disciplined imagination. We need imagination that sort of applies this kind of system. And he was thinking, he, he talks about sort of the hierarchy of sort of Eastern, you know, uh, religions, but he basically means this is kind of different levels of, of reality or dimensions of reality, whatever you want to, uh, however you want to characterize it, that we can enter into and, and make contact with through our imagination. But, there, you know, it, again, it's, it's, um, it's something that we need to learn how to use. It's actually a faculty. It's, it's, it it's a faculty we need to have to, uh, to learn how to use. And um, that's something we don't quite understand yet. And, you know, some, uh, a, an optimistic kind of fantasy of mine is that, yes, as you say, there's higher powers kind of looking down on us and saying, oh, they've reached that stage. Okay, well, let's see what happens. This is the, this is the very important point now, because they got to get past all this kind of stuff that they, you know, um, one of the ways I, I, I think about this is, um, uh, Historian Arnold Toynbee in the 20th century, um, he he had this theory of challenge and response, and that th this was the motor of history for Toynbee was that you know uh, civilizations um, grow and and they 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 move and they develop by meeting challenges, and if the challenge is too great, then it defeats them and they're smashed, and if it's not great enough and it's too easy. And they become complacent and decadent. Uh, but if it's just right, uh, and this is why I, I call it the Goldilocks theory of, of history, if, if the challenge is just right, then the civilization can, can bring up enough energy and creativity and will and so on to meet the challenge and to keep going. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's sort of to get, get healthy and keep going, you know, uh, get, you know, more, and, you know, how many have done that? Well, <laughs> not too many, but uh, I, but uh, I like the idea that, okay, maybe we're at that point now, maybe we're at that point where, okay, we have all these challenges, because you certainly have the challenges. Well, certainly at some point, some kind of higher wisdom is going to have to speak. And I mean, you might even say that in the States, what happened in the recent election was perhaps some of that wisdom beginning to come to the fore saying, look, this stuff is insane. It's exclusionary. A lot of these policies that are being perpetuated. And now it's time for another kind of voice to rise. And we're certainly beginning to see that here. Um, and we'll see what happens in Britain soon as well. But... Go ahead. Oh, I guess I have, have no idea what's. Oh, it's it's no, it's it's topsy turvy here. No one knows what's happening here. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy over there. It's as crazy there as here. I mean, and the yeah. same thing with Brexit and this this swell of kind of conservative nationalism and everything that has arisen there. Fractured well, it's not, it's not only here; it's in, as well. in Europe as well. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Bannon's going around, and you know, tub thumping for it and all that. So it's um, it's something that's it's the swell. I mean, I I I don't know. I mean, I. I Personally, again, I'm I'm no I'm no political um, analyst, but personally, I I don't feel it's going to die out anytime soon. Um, I, I I have the feeling it's it's going to uh, things are going to get you know I don't want to say things are going to get worse, but I so I I do feel like it's going to it's going to have to roll a bit more before um, any kind of real resistance starts. But let's you know let's hope I'm wrong. Well, the resistance is starting a little bit in the U.S., as we have seen recently. We'll see where that goes. I want to bring in one more concept before we kind of start wrapping up the conversation, and that is the notion of the Overton window, because really, this is playing out 
in a large way around the world. Things that we had at one time considered totally unacceptable are being embraced. So let's talk about this, this whole notion of this Overton, Overton window. Well, this is the idea of what's, what's, what's acceptable, uh, basically. And um, what the recent sort of, uh, that's, I guess the alt-right, I guess you could see them as a kind of far-right counterculture in a way, which is kind of, you know, a polar, polar opposite of the 60s, you know, far-left kind of counterculture. Uh, uh, and um, because it, when, I mean, I don't know how, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't been like following up with them since I've done the book and other things, I've, I've gone on to other things. So I don't, I don't quite know how popular or how much they're in the news there anymore and that sort of thing. But I know, um, when I was researching the book and in, in, around that time, uh, I mean, they were turning up in magazines, men's magazines or you know, HQ or something like that, or uh, that kind of thing. And it was sort of like, Oh, this new kind of conservative hipster sort of thing. So there was a kind of like, yes. And I mean, you could say from the other point of view, well, what, what, what other weird stuff hasn't, you know, uh, have mm-hmm. we not accepted, you know, all the other stuff that, you know, the people on the far right think is this horrible stuff that the far, you know, the progressive well, kind of stuff with gender bending and all this sort of thing. So I'm, again, I'm not taking sides, but I'm just saying, well, okay, well, that, that wasn't, I mean, I, you say the seventies when I was first hanging out in New York in the seventies, sort of the glitter days, it was like fun and weird to do that, but still it was a walking on the wild side, but now it's, now it's kind of, I, I, I'm not saying it should be like that, but now it isn't that wild anymore. It's like, it's, no. you know, there all the time. It's part of the natural world and it's accepted. So in that sense, you know, we have accepted something, but what's, I guess, being asked to be accepted now is, you know, the polar opposite of that kind of tolerance. And it's, it's, it's a kind of, you know, uh, very, it's the traditional point of view. It's this very ultra conservative kind of point of view and uh, which could contains you know, ideas about race and gender and all that, that, you know, many of us find, you know, uh, repulsive and so on that. But again, it's, it's, this is where you, the popular culture, this is where the media and all that comes in. And, and one of the ways in which um, this Overton window gets open is by what's disseminated out into the popular consciousness. And one of the things we didn't touch on, but um, I say in the book, it was this whole idea to me is like the internet, what we're, we're using now, you know, and, or, or this will be part of, it's when you post it is this kind of exteriorized imagination. Yes. It's kind of something. And this is to me, again, this is part of this kind of, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it, this phase we're in now where inner and outer and real and fantasy, they're all kind of slip sliding around each other. And so this kind of interiority is now exteriorizing. We, we all share this. It's kind of a shared collective consciousness, you know, and you know, there's, unconsciousness in there too one can say i mean yeah the whole idea of some this this was you know the whole we didn't mention this at all but this was how the alt-right claimed to have you know put trump in office but by yes. using, using the internet using memes on the internet peppy the frog is the uh, you know the one in question and th- somehow using that as a magical symbol in which in which to imprint their will and talk about Pepe the Frog. I have it in my notes. We just kind of skipped right over it. So talk about that phenomenon. Well, I'll do it very quickly if I can. Pepe the Frog is the creation of a cartoonist named Matt Fury, who I suspect is Matt Furious these days because it's been um, commandeered by, by the far right, by the alt-right. And he was a sort of amphibian slacker. 
And he was just in one of his comic strips and all that. And as, as, as things happen on the net, he got picked up and other people were you know, having pictures with him and, you know, rock stars and celebrities and all that. But there's this kind of um, uh, underculture, subculture, um, online addicts that are very much anti-PC and they're just kind of, you know, it's just probably for the hell of it. They're probably not political at all, but they just, you know, they, they hate all the PC kind of liberal progressive kind of world. And they, they, they you know, they, they basically just want to, you know, annoy it. And so they commandeered Pepe and they started using him as a kind of symbol for Trump. And there's, uh, I think one of the first ones was uh, an image on, on the net of Pepe looking over the Mexican border and, you know, or, or over the wall or something like that. And um, there's Hillary Clinton who put him on the map, really, just as she did with the alt-right because she, she sort of talked about the alt-right in one of her speeches or one of her interviews or something. And then she also sort of she, she basically tagged Pepe as a kind of postmodern swastika because he was, he's, he's been commandeered and being used as a hate symbol. And the guy, I guess the one, yeah, the one she said was the, uh, well, she called, she called Trump and his gang, the deplorables or something like that. And then there was this, um, you know, image on the net of, of Trump and whatever Bannon and a bunch of other people. And then Pepe's Pepe, the frog is in there. And the idea was that, and this is where we sort of touch on with the chaos magic thing. And the simplest thing to understand chaos magic, and um, uh, I hope I'm not simplifying it too much, is that instead of using all the, the old tried and true traditional implements of magic, you know, the wand, the bell, you know, the circle, you use whatever's at hand mm-hmm. and you kind of make it up. And it, it, it's fundamentally based on your imagination and your will. And it's a kind of do-it-yourself kind of magic. And interestingly enough, it came up in the sort of punk era at the same time, which was the kind of a do-it-yourself, you know, music. You know, you don't don't rely on all the old stuff. Don't learn Jimi Hendrix licks. Just bang at it and get something out of it. And so they were doing that. And originally it was old school stuff. Uh, memes are this coinage by Richard Dawkins, and it's a kind of cultural unit, supposed to be like a cultural gene. And so memes in the old school were books and television and you know radio and that kind of thing. But by the time uh, this this time now, everything's on the net. And so Pepe is on the net. And so they basically, the idea is that they, you know, commandeered Pepe as this kind of meme to use as a magical sigil in which to affect events in the real world. Mm -hmm. And I I won't go into how they thought of that in the first place, but they they already had had some experience of stuff they were posting. And then they saw, oh my God, we posted that. And that looks like the same thing that we posted. Is, Is that really happening? And so the idea was like, well, let's see. And it's based on Jung's notion of synchronicity when you know something happening in your mind and something happening in the outer world are meaningfully connected. They're not causally connected, but they're so meaningfully connected that you can't ignore it. You know, it's just it, it's something that affects you very much and, and so on and so on. So if you transpose that phenomena to things taking place between the internet and the real world, so uh, you have this what they called synchromysticism. It's just kind of a mm-hmm. high tech high tech term for synchronicity. So that's that's the context. Okay, we're gonna make we're going to put Trump into office by using the internet, by using this meme of this frog. So it's chaos magic, folks. So it is kind of funny, <laughs> kind of weird. But again, the strange thing is that this is something Evola did back in the 20s. He didn't use Pepe the Frog and he didn't use the internet, but he did use magical rituals with other members of a group he was in to try and influence Mussolini. So Evola was doing the same thing or 
Richard Spencer and um, his alt-right fellow travelers were doing the same thing, if indeed they were doing it, they, they claim to have done it. They were doing the same thing that Evola was doing. So again, that's another thing that struck me as, oh, this is very interesting. Okay, it's something that was going on 100 years ago, more or less. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, here it is. It's happening um, you know, in, in 21st century. And if we're using the internet in this way, this, the, this way of chaos magic as you speak of, and we're creating these um, egregores, as it were, entities that are kind of part of a collective imagination, mm -hmm. you actually were, in your book, you were saying that it's possible that Trump is a type of egregore that we <laughs> collectively created uh, through the creative and imaginative use of the internet. But again, when you're getting back to the notion of, and the reason I, I brought up um, the subject of the acceptable and the unacceptable mm. in times past is we're in a post-truth era. That seems to be true. Truth is not, it's not a relevant thing. It's, as you say, it's considered in the postmodern world just a matter of perception, whatever truth may be. And so when you start cutting loose of that, you start cutting loose of one's own kind of moral fabric. And when we're talking about what's acceptable, I was even going, I was going past mm. just mm -hmm. the subjects on the table to people like my father, who is a mm. very, very kind, kind of mm. genuinely moral individual who ran a business in just the old-fashioned straight ways, no one had in dealings. And now, as a, a Christian and a conservative, he's got to follow the party. He follows Trump, and all of a sudden, all these things that Trump has been doing and I'm not just laying it all on Trump, it's happened with Kim uh -huh. and many others, where he did not accept these behaviors in the past, especially around misogyny and uh, yeah. the treatment of women. It's just part of doing business in my dad's mind now. He's 88-year-old, conservative, highly moral, nice man, but it's suddenly acceptable. That's what I'm talking about, this meme uh -huh. we've created, right? This egregore uh -huh. we've created uh -huh. has lowered all the boundaries for what is and isn't acceptable across the board. Well, I think in Trump's case, I said, there are, uh, the idea of the heroic is kind of different. So um, I guess in Trump, it's sort of like, you know, make a lot of money. He's able to, you know, have all the beautiful women he wants and do what he wants and get away with it, that kind of thing. And, you know, again, you know, yeah, I'm sure many people are offended by it. I mean, to me, <laughs> when I, that, that is, what do you want to say? All, all the sort of, you know, the, the kind of... Um, sexual sort of um you know mishaps that he's involved in and all that kind of thing is in one way it's sort of yeah. what i'm saying it's, it's sort of it's sort of like well okay but what what even strikes me struck me sort of brings it down to this banal absurd level is when he's at these you know press conferences and he says you're a bad <laughs> you're a bad person you're yeah. super, it's like it's like god we're in like the 12th grade or the, <laughs> well, the 12th years old, i mean I mean, twelve years old, kind of thing. It's just yeah. well, I don't know. It depends where you went to high school, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, no, no, it's 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 true, and it's 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 this lowering of things to this kind of base. But again, you know, I would say, what do you want to say? I'm again, I'm just talking off the cuff. But there's yeah. sort of there's a whole, you know, there's been pressure, sort of like, okay, you can't say this, you can't say that, you can't do that, and then a lot of people build up resentment to that. I mean, I remember, again, when I was a kid, I grew up watching All in the Family. I and mean, if you remember this TV show, and it was like, you know, it was, you know, the father was right-wing, right Archie Bunker, right-wing conservative and all that kind of thing. But everybody watched it, and it was funny and all that. But now it's kind of like, 
everybody can kind of be like that now and it's okay to get away with it. And that's what a real man is like. And it's kind of like, no, it's horrible. I, I, I think but it's this, 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 the stupidity of it, but I guess that's the sort of thing. It's good. It's, it's down to this very, very grim base kind of um, way of doing things, which um, I don't know. I, I, I guess in a way it's, it's, it, it, as you say, it opens, well, I guess it appeals to people that they feel like, well, okay, well, yeah, well, you know, actually I've always wanted to say this and I can't, now I can because that and that kind of thing. And I, I agree. It's, it, it's, it's, it's dangerous. You know, it's, it's dangerous. It's, uh, it's letting loose a, a dark side that um, has been kind of kept down for a while, but I guess, but again, this is, you know, Jung and others would say, you have to somehow integrate that dark side. You have to yes. somehow do something with it because if you if you don't do something with it it will do something with you and yes. which is what you know sort of you know is happening and again um this is my optimistic side coming out i mean jung, jung looked at, at neuroses as actually a positive sign meaning that it, at least the person was trying to deal with the situation he's dealing with it completely hopelessly and it's you know it's pointless it's never going to work out but he's not completely passive and you know, um, not trying anything at all. And so in a way, the kind of crisis, the, the distress itself is a sign that, uh, again, uh, just going back to Jung, his whole notion that the psyche is sort of uh, compensatory. So mm -hmm. if something goes too much in one way, then, you know, again, either you do it, you're aware of it and you try to, you know, rectify it or it, it'll happen because that's just, that's how it, it works out. So one wants to do it, one hopes we can do it ourselves because that's the way we'll be able to guide it and be a part of it. But if it, something it happens to it, well, it doesn't. It might, it's not going to be a picnic necessarily. Right. You know, things have to come out to be a balance. And um, so, I mean, I, I I do think we're at a point where, as I said earlier, all these things that were on the fringe, you know, for the longest time, have at least now kind of come come into the center. Um, um, in, in different forms, but the, I think the, the the main way of understanding the time is this whole, as you say, this whole notion of reality of like, well, what, what's real? What's real anymore? I mean, we know in the ways of you know the media and all that how it can manipulate, but yes. just even outside of that, just when we're trying to understand like what what actually you know is real and 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 uh, what, what can we rely on? What can we count on? What can we depend on? That's sort of like this kind of dark night of the soul i would say we kind of have to go through now um and uh, it's uh, it's something we will have to come th come through jung said you can't go around or over it. you have to go through it so uh, that's why i say i think it, it's going to be you know a bit of a rough ride for a while before we actually get to the point where you know come out the other end um i hope we do <laughs> There's no well guarantee. we are in the rough ride right we're now. trying we're trying to do it now talking about we are we are. And, you know, and the book, interesting, Dark Star Rising, which is, you know, magic and power in the age of Trump, really isn't about Trump. He is a representative for this collective egregore that we have created oh, well, in response yeah, to get... our own deep emotional uh, desires, even though they're maybe dark and unconscious collectively right now. Yeah. He exists because of our own consciousness. And I think it's important to say that, that, that Donald Trump is an agent of change if you just want to reframe it for us to respond to or react to. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, 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 I've been meaning to um, comment on um, the egregore. And the egregore is, this, is a term for um, a kind of um, group, a, a, a kind of psychic or spiritual entity that, that's created out of a group mind. Um, and, um, one of the, 
dangers with the egregore is that after a time, uh, the the poles reverse and it, it, be, it become it, 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 you feed it all your attention and all your imagination and your intention. And you do that because it's, it's going to help you. It's, it's, it's giving you power and you're able to sort of, you know, do things. But at some point it, it turns around, it, it, it becomes, you know, more powerful and is basically, you know, li living off of you. But the other thing that um, I sort of mentioned in, in, in the book and, you know, sort of reference uh, to Trump, again, sort of have tongue in cheek is this uh, notion of the tulpa, and the tulpa is um, comes out of Tibetan Buddhism, and again, it's it's a sort of thought form uh, mm -hmm. that's created by the mind. Uh, and there's a famous story by the um, uh, European traveler Alexander David Neal, and she was, if not the first, one of the first European women to get into Lhasa. And she said, was she was studying with the monks in Tibet, and she was taught how to create a tulpa, and she visualized this monk. And gradually, it took on shape and form and contours and all that. And she felt she could, it was projected out into the world. And the way she tells it, um, it people could actually bump into it or feel it when it moved, moved past them, all that sort of thing. But the problem was that she had made it too, too, too good. She, you know, she, the artist was, you know, she was sort of like a Pygmalion. The artist was so good that it came to life on its own and it sort of got away. And the tulpa was sort of running around and doing things and all this. And the head monk said, you have to, you got to get hold of your tulpa and bring it back because it's just causing a lot of trouble. And I have saying in the book, as I said sort of before about Trump being on um, reality televisions for a long time, is he kind of like a telly tulpa? Right. This kind of thought form that's, we, we've drawn him out of the television, you know, we, we, we've pulled him out of there. Because um, one of the things I say is like, you know, we've been putting so much reality in, into the television or into the, the video screen that it, there's not going to be any space left. So something's going to have to sort of come out. And so well, I think, well, that's what happened. Trump came out. He came out of that thing. And again, you're right. The book isn't specifically about Trump. It, it's, it's, about, it's about the story of this connection of all these seemingly separate incidents of a kind of occult politics that actually are connected. Um, and there's no conspiracy. It's just connection through ideas and people knowing each other and that kind of thing. But they all seem to be happening at the same time. And that's, that's how it um, all started. I was sort of with one thread and I pulled it and I followed it and it connected all these other things. That's why it's called Magic and Power in the Age of Trump. Um, because again, we just touched on, on Putin, but he, he's been creating his own reality uh, in Russia for, for the longest time now. Um, and, um, I mean, that's, uh, I, that, that's a whole other story. I mean, that, that, that's something that is, um, when you, you think about sort of what Trump's doing, he's kind of like a one man show. Right. Uh, of this kind of chaos reality TV show. Whereas like Putin had, it's like a whole network. Um, and he had many, many different shows going on at the same time. And basically, you know, 99% of, or 90% of, you know, the Russian populace is basically, that's the reality they, they inhabited. And again, it was through the magic of media and, and television and all that kind of thing. So, I mean, reality is something that's up for grabs here. And um, again, in, in, in very, very concrete ways in terms of like the media, but also in how we understand it and also what goes on inside here. You know, if, if any of this stuff is real, the fundamental idea is that, you know, what happens in the mind doesn't stay there or it doesn't always stay there. You know, yeah. it goes out, goes out into the world. Yes. And one, one of the ways I, I look at this is rather than say, okay, if that's the case, then I'm, I'm going to go for it. I, I want to I make that happen. I want to understand, well, how am I already making happen what, what's happening? 
Because on some unconscious level, I must be already doing this. Is this is what Swedenborg and Jung and all these others are saying? You're, you're, you can say projection or whatever, however you want to phrase it. But at some unconscious level, I am already informing this reality that I open my eyes to and accept naively is just there. It's just there. I have nothing to do with that. But actually, I'm not saying I'm, I'm making the trees and the walls and that kind of thing. But my picture of them, or how, how I see them, you know, how, how, how what, what story is being sort of told in the background through all this kind of thing. That's something I'm, I'm informing. And the first one of the first lessons is to find out what you're doing. Because, and you have to separate you from this reality that you're creating. And then if you can kind of draw away what you're putting into it so you can see what's there. So you can see what's really there. And that's, that's something in different ways, you know, I'm sorry, you can say that's something no, in different ways. But, um, you know, a variety of different philosophers or thinkers have been, you know, talking about how to do. Indeed. So now we're at a point where, yes, it's very interesting watching the human species develop their faculties, their thought, their will. And now just adding a, a dose of responsibility to that and wisdom is certainly going to be the way forward. But like you say, a bit of a bumpy ride. I just want to bring one other thing as an aside up, because you brought up Putin and that he's been creating this reality for a very long time. He started up in the days of Yeltsin. And I want to just put this one thing forward for people as a bit of informative entertainment. If you uh, rent the film or watch the film, I, it might even be available on Amazon, Netflix, or Hulu. It's called Spinning Boris. I don't know if you ever saw it. Mm. It's a fascinating film. It's how Boris Yeltsin was elected, the first manipulation of the Russian populace by mass media, which was engineered by a fellow that I actually know. And he told me the behind-the-scenes stuff and said, yep. They left out a lot of the actually scary, dark stuff from that movie. But he's George Gorton. He's the primary character, a spin doctor that was brought in to have basically install Boris Yeltsin into power. And this was this was Putin's. Um, these were his early days of influence. So. If you have a chance to watch it, anybody. Well, check it out. Yeah. Well, I mean, the story of Putin himself is that you know. Um, they did a survey of when they had to find someone to take over from Yeltsin. Um, they did a survey of, you know, who, who would be the most likely person? Who, who would you want to see as president? And it came up a kind of, you know, uh, there was a, a, a spy program, you know, Russian spy program from the 1970s about a Russian spy in Germany like, during the World War II. And they said, yeah, that, that kind of character. And like, Putin's what? He's an ex-KGB man. So he's sort of like, okay, they just called general, they called, you know, general casting, you know, and, and right. they, they sent him up and then, you know, and, um, you know, so, uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'll, 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 ha I'll have to look for that. No, I mean, again, we haven't mentioned it, but um, this fellow Vladislav Surkov during Putin's, you know, time, he's not, he's not at the helm now, but for at least a decade, he was the, the spin doctor and the, the PR man creating this virtual reality that, um, you know, I said pretty much one out of, you know, or nine out of every 10 Russians was sort of, that's the reality yeah. that, they, right. that, that they lived in. Well, that's and, how it's done. It's spun yeah, well, it's created. It's using thought and will to uh, install someone into a position of power, as Steve Bannon said. You know, this was uh, this was uh, divine, as it was supposed to have been. Right? They created him. They installed him into power. It was his win. Their win. 
Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, well, again, that's you know, and um, we're we're here now, and we have to we have to um, watch out. You know, we have to be sort of we have to be very careful. Um, I think we have to be very we have to be very aware of what's going on inside our own heads. You know, uh, in in the sense of you know what we're projecting out, but also in what's what's being coming in put, put into it, and you know, and, and in a variety of different ways. So. I agree. And uh, toward that end, about what's coming out of our heads, uh, you and I are both going to be presenting at a conference at the Omega Institute uh, October next year. I think it's the weekend of the 6th, 7th, right in there. But you're going to be presenting on the topic of the lost knowledge of the imagination. And that's very useful. And I think it's uh, critical for people to start engaging the imagination in a way that, as you said earlier, is disciplined. It's imaginative but disciplined and also weaves wisdom into it. So if you want to just for a sec say something about that before we say goodbye. Oh, uh, well, I mean, I, I would say the imagination is something, it, it, it's something that we use all the time. And um, in a broad sense, it's not about make believe is what we usually consider it, but it's about make real. Uh, and, you know, in the sense that it's, it's I can't go on at great length, but it's a kind of intuitive glue that holds yeah. everything together. And if we don't have it, um, the, the world begins to look rather sort of dead, <laughs> and <laughs> bleak. And uh, it's not necessarily having a wonderful imagination of you know inventing you know fantastic scenes and all that, but it's it's being able to sort of um, hold hold. So it's being able to sort of grasp the inside of reality put it that way yes i want to thank you for that just a little tease for anybody that can make it there uh, meanwhile thank you so much for taking the time today and also for the incredible work you've done i really want to get off on the get get on to the rudolf steiner book next and so um would you have something coming up next or something you're working on right now you'd like to let well, us actually know? working on a book about russia now but, oh, um, perfect. Yeah, that's uh, the, the deadline looms, so I'm doing that. But uh, no, thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. We'll look forward to that in our next conversation. So until next time, everybody, you can find Gary on Gary, uh, Gary Lachman, L-A-C-H-M-A-N dot co dot U-K.